listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. I read this week that 2 Thessalonians is one of the least studied books of the Bible in churches. And so you guys are fortunate this morning you get to study 2 Thessalonians. You get the few, the proud, right? It's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, open with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, we're in a series right now called Upside Down. And in this series, what we're doing is we are studying through Paul's first and second letters to the Thessalonians. You know, when the gospel first came to the city of Thessalonica, the response of the people in that city was, these people who have turned the whole world upside down have now come here also. And we know that when the gospel comes into your life, that's what it does. It turns your world upside down in all the best ways. And it's never something to fear. It's always something to embrace uh, with excitement. But our series is called Uh, upside down and we're looking at the ways in which the Thessalonian Christians they acted and believed in ways that were upside down from what was considered normal or uh, average in their society so we're going to begin by reading our text this morning we're going to read the whole chapter it's a short one and then we're going to study through it verse by verse so let's begin by reading together second Thessalonians starting in chapter one verse one Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that this morning as we study it, Lord, help us to understand it. Lord, help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to see how these truths that are in this chapter, Lord, apply to our lives today. And Lord, we pray that as we do this, Lord, you do a transforming work within us. Lord, transform our minds, transform our hearts. Lord, let us hear those words of life that we need to hear this morning. You know where each of us are at. Lord, you know the particular things that we're facing. And Lord, we ask this morning, um, maybe there are some of us who need a word of challenge. Maybe there are some of us who need a word of comfort. But Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you'd minister to us through this passage from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been said that if you speak to hurting people, you will never lack an audience. You will always have an audience if you speak to hurting people. And that's because everyone you meet is fighting a battle. 
Everyone you meet is fighting a battle. They're carrying a burden that you may not know about, that you may not see in your interaction with them. You know, many people in this world are what we would call faint-hearted. What does it mean to be faint-hearted? To be faint-hearted means to be tired from the battle. Now, doesn't that describe how some of us feel in our lives, right? Tired from the battle, worn out. I wonder if any of you feel that way this morning. You're tired, you're worn out, right? Maybe you've been facing battles at home. Maybe you've been facing battles at work. Uh, Maybe it's just the constant pressure of the responsibilities that you have and the deadlines that you face. Or maybe there's something going on with someone you love and care about. Maybe it's not you, but there's someone in your life who's faint-hearted and you wanna know, how can I encourage this person? Uh, Maybe emotionally today, you're just worn out. Uh, Maybe there's something going on in your life that has you discouraged. If you've ever been faint-hearted, and I believe that's all of us at one time or another, then this message is for you. See, one year after Paul wrote his first letter to the Thessalonians, he wrote a second letter. In his second letter to Thessalonians, which we have preserved for us here in our Bibles, that's where we put our attention now, Paul wrote uh, this letter to a group of people who were discouraged. There was ongoing correspondence, really, between Paul and the Thessalonian church. See, Paul had started this church on his second missionary journey, which we can read about in the book of Acts, right? He planted many churches during this journey, including this church in Thessalonica. So Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey, but after he moved on from the city and went elsewhere, he made a point of it to keep in touch with them, to keep tabs on them, to check in with them and see how they were doing, and he corresponded with them. And what it seems like is, you know, last Sunday we finished Paul's first letter to Thessalonians. Well, what it seems like, and we're just kind of putting the pieces together here, is that the Thessalonians then responded to Paul's first letter, and now this second letter is Paul's response to their response to him. So it's this ongoing correspondence, but we only have one side of it. What we can gather, because again, we only have one side of the correspondence, but it's not that hard to figure out what's going on we can gather that the Thessalonians were very discouraged at this time when they read this letter, when they received this letter. Probably they had written to Paul about their discouragement, about the things they were facing, about what had them down and faint-hearted. They were dealing with, as we'll see in this letter, they were dealing with intense persecution from the authorities and from people in society. They were dealing with false teachers who were coming in and trying to lead people astray. They were also dealing with some members in their congregation who were just acting badly. And, and all of these things accumulated to just wear them down and leave them faint-hearted. And at the end, what's interesting, at the end of 1 Thessalonians, as we studied last week in chapter 5, one of the things that Paul instructed the Thessalonians to do was to encourage the faint-hearted people in their own congregation. That's what he said, encourage the faint-hearted. And, and now, Paul, as he picks up the pen, he realizes that this is a time for him to encourage them, that they are faint-hearted, and now it's time for him to encourage them. That's what he does here in this first chapter of his second letter. And again, maybe there are some of you today, you're faint-hearted, or maybe there are people you know and care about who are faint-hearted, and you want to know, how can I encourage them? What can I say? What can I do to encourage a faint-hearted person? Well, here in, first, in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, we see three things, three things that Paul does in order to encourage these faint-hearted people. My prayer is that these things will first of all, encourage you, but secondly, they'll also give you some tools that you can use to encourage people around you who are faint-hearted themselves. So here are the three things he gives them. Number one, he gives them an outside perspective. 
So he gives them an outside perspective in verses three and four. Then from verses five through 10, the majority of the chapter, he gives an explanation of God's justice. And now again, remember why. He's wanting to encourage these faint-hearted people. So he gives them an explanation of God's justice. And finally, he prays a surprising prayer in verses 11 and 12. So let's look at this. We'll begin with the greeting. Paul begins this letter in the way that was customary at that time, right? We tend to sign our names at the end of a letter, in the old days, they used to sign their names at the beginning of a letter. Why? Because when you got that scroll and you opened it up, you wouldn't have to unroll three feet of scroll just to find out that it was junk mail, right? You'd be able to find out right away, should I continue? Is this just like an all-state advertisement? You know, what is this? And so uh, he, they open it up and says, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. When these guys would have read those names... Their hearts would have jumped. You can imagine the guy getting it from the courier, you know, getting this, this, uh, this scroll from the messenger and opening it up and says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy right there at the very top. And he stops what he's doing. He goes and gets his friends. They send people around to knock on doors, gather everybody together. The church gathers in somebody's home or anywhere they can get together. And they got, guys, we got a letter from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. We're gonna read this together. And you can imagine the excitement and the expectation that they must have felt. See, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, who were these guys? Well, if you read in the book of Acts, it was these three men who had brought the gospel to the city of Thessalonica in the first place. They were the ones who had established their church. They were the ones who first taught them about Jesus. And see, Paul was the leader of this missionary team, but Silvanus and Timothy were like his right hand and his left hand man. And so together, they signed this letter. Hey, this is from us. We're still together. We're still thinking about you. We're still praying for you. And then he says this, his common greeting, which we see in several of Paul's letters, but here's what he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Now, it's, of course, it's really easy for us to like be like, okay, yada, 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 yada. Let me get to the content of this chapter. But I want you to not speed through this because here in this greeting even, there's something I want you to see. See, the city of Thessalonica was made up of, as were most cities in the uh, Roman Empire at this time, was made up of a combination of Jews and Greeks, right? So in mostly Jewish, uh, or sorry, mostly Greek-speaking people, but there was always a concentration of Jews in almost every major city in the Roman Empire, especially in the, the eastern part of the empire, the Greek-speaking part. And so the church there was, again, also made up in the same way of Greek people and Jewish people who had all come to put their faith in Jesus and trust in him. Now, the common Greek greeting in ancient Greek was to say, if you're going to say, hey, what's up, hi, to somebody, you say, kaira. Kaira was the uh, ancient Greek greeting. Now, the ancient, uh, well, the Jewish greeting, the common Jewish greeting, even to this day, is shalom. What does shalom mean? It means peace, right? So that's what Jewish people say to each other even to this day, shalom, so peace. Now, so he says, uh, I want you to see what he's doing. It kind of is missed on us who speak English, but Paul's taking two greetings, the Greek greeting and the Jewish greeting. He's greeting both groups of people, Jews and Greeks, kaira and shalom. Except what Paul does is he changes that word kaira to a similar word, which is charis, which sounds very similar, and it means grace. You see, because for Christians, that's at the heart of the gospel, the grace of God. And so I guess my point is for you this, the original readers would have picked up on this what is this? It's a 2,000-year-old Christian pun, right? They would have read this. Paul's like, grace to you and peace. And it's like a play on words, right? Where he's 
making a change on the Greek greeting and he's including the Jewish greeting. And they would have been like, Paul, I see what you did there. You're so punny, right? So if you guys like puns, uh, this is the, one of the oldest ones that I know of, right? There's probably older ones, but here's a Christian pun right here in your Bible that you probably overlooked. And so Paul says this, he, he says, but he makes a theological statement about it. He says, not only does he say hi, hello, he says grace and peace, and the only source of grace and peace that exists, the only source of true grace, the only source of saving grace and true peace is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul jumps right in after this greeting to uh, the content of his letter, the reason he's writing to give encouragement to these faint-hearted people. The first thing he gives them is this. Number one, he gives them an outside perspective. An outside perspective. He says this in verse three. We always give thanks to you, and we should, because it is only right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love that you have for each other is always increasing. And then in verse four, he mentions the specific circumstances in which this is happening. He says, in the midst of all your persecution and the afflictions that you are enduring. See, the Thessalonians had written to Paul in response to his first letter, and they said, Paul, we gotta tell you, we're struggling, we're struggling. We got false teachers, we got freeloaders in the church, we got persecution from people on the outside. And Paul says this, he says, you know what, you guys, I know that you're dealing with some really hard things. I know this is hard for you, but here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that whether you realize it or not, whether you feel it or not, I can see it from the outside and other people see it. And when we look at you guys, you know what we see? We see growth. We see love. We see that you guys are growing so much. You're growing in faith. You're growing in love. See, Paul at this point, he's like a proud dad, right? He's like a, that big brother, a big sister who comes and puts their hand on your shoulder and looks you in the eye and says, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Here's what I see in you. Whether you see it or not, here's what I see. Maybe you have somebody like that in your life. I know that that has been something in my life which has been very meaningful. Those people that you look up to, somebody you've known for a long time and they know you and you know how meaningful it is when that person puts their hand on your shoulder, looks you in the eye and says, I'm proud of you. You've done well. I see so much growth in your life. See, that was Paul's role in these guys' life. And they would have been so encouraged to hear this. All of us need that from time to time. We need to get an outside perspective that tells us how we're really doing. No matter how we feel, no matter how we think, we need somebody from the outside to tell us how we're really doing. We need people who can speak into our lives and tell us what they see. Not only to encourage us, there's that piece, but sometimes to challenge us, right? Sometimes to call us out. Sometimes to tell us that, hey, what you're doing here isn't good. We need that in our lives. We need that in order to grow. See, one of the reasons why we're, we're encouraging you so much to join a community group here at Whitefields, we always say, join a group, join a team. That's how you get plugged in. One of the reasons we're doing that is because we really honestly believe that in order for you to grow, in order for you to become the person who God wants you to be, you need committed Christian community. You need people who know you and you know them and they can look you in the eye and speak into your life. And maybe for some of you, you need to be that person in somebody else's life, right? Maybe you have a son or a daughter. Maybe you have a friend or, or somebody you know and you need to look them in the eye and speak those, those life-giving, powerful words that say, here's what I see in you. 
There's this really interesting passage at the end of the book of Genesis. Again, I think it's uh, one of those passages that gets overlooked very often. And the reason is because it kind of falls right in the middle of the story of Joseph. You know, and Joseph's just this big epic story. But there are a couple things that happen in the chapters that encompass Joseph's story that sometimes get overlooked. And one of them is that Jacob, right, who's Joseph's father, he's, the, he's also called Israel. He's the father of the, the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. What he does is at the end of his life, in Genesis chapter 49, this great patriarch, he calls together all of his sons to come to him. And then one by one, he speaks into their lives and he blesses them. And he does it uniquely for each of them. And so you can read through chapter 49. He says, Reuben, my firstborn son, I'm so proud of you. You're so strong. You're so dignified. But at the same time, Reuben, you know what else I see in your life? I see that you can have a tendency to be unstable. And that worries me. And then he goes on and he says, you know, to Levi, to Simeon, to Judah, he blesses them, speaks into their lives, tells them what he's proud about, the strengths that he sees. He tells them about the the weaknesses that cause him concern. And it says there at the end of uh, Genesis 49, the end of the section, it says this, this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them with a blessing suitable for them. Man, I tell you what. Having those kind of words, those words that are suitable for that person, that kind of blessing. We need those kinds of relationships. We want to become also those kinds of people. We need that outside perspective. You know why? Because sometimes our feelings and our thoughts don't reflect reality. See, we can be deceived. We're actually quite good at tricking ourselves and deceiving ourselves and and believing things that aren't true. And that's why we need other people around us. The way that we think, the way we feel can often be skewed. See, one of the things you'll notice in the Bible, if you read about Satan, Satan and spiritual warfare, which means like demonic activity in the world, is that in the life of a believer, in the life of a Christian, one of the main battlegrounds in which spiritual warfare takes place, in which Satan attacks, is the believer's thought life. You know that? It's a believer's thought life. And Jesus, he referred to Satan, he called him, he said, he is the father of lies. And when he tells lies, of course, that's what he does. He's the father of lies. And he does it all the time. He lies, that's his thing. And so one of the main battlegrounds for spiritual warfare is our minds. That's why when Paul talks about spiritual armor to stand against the attacks of Satan, he talks about wearing a helmet of salvation, that helmet that protects your head, it protects your mind. It's those evil, destructive thoughts that seem to come from the outside and attack you, right? Those thoughts that just come in and tell you you're worthless, that everybody would just be happier if you weren't here anymore, that nobody would notice if you were gone, and that what you're doing, your life is just meaningless, and you might as well give up and check out. It's those words of temptation that tell you, you know what? Just give in. It's going to be fine, right? It's those discouraging words that seem to barrage you, especially when you're already faint-hearted. And if that weren't bad enough, right, if it weren't just our minds, it's also our hearts. We, we, it's not only we have a battlefield in our minds, but the Bible tells us that our own hearts can deceive us, right? When someone tells you, hey, just listen to your heart, that's like the worst advice you could possibly give someone. That whole song, like, listen to your heart. I'm always like, no. Don't do that. That's the worst thing you could possibly do, right? Like people listen to their hearts and they do really dumb stuff. That's pretty much like the worst advice. So our hearts can mislead us. And so we need Christian community. We need people who will give us that outside perspective and tell us how we're really doing. We need other people who can speak the truth into our lives. And so we need community. 
But here's the, other, here's the other thing that's important to see in this passage. Your faith cannot grow unless it's tested. Do you know that? Your faith cannot grow. It will not grow unless it is tested. See, Paul mentions that the faith of the Thessalonians was growing abundantly, right? It's growing like weeds, right? Like it's growing like crazy. But check this out. The abundant growth they were experiencing was a result of the hardships they were facing. Do you know that? Right? So the, the growth they're experiencing is due to, in large part, the hardships that they're facing. See, facing difficult circumstances is not fun. Nobody would choose it. But unless your faith is put to the test, it will not grow. See, faith is like a muscle. If you don't use it, if you don't put some pressure on it, if you don't strain it, if it's not pushed to its limits, it won't grow. It won't increase. If you never have to face any situations in your life that require faith, your faith's not going to get any stronger. You know, the Bible has so much to say about this, by the way, about how our faith grows through testing. For example, in James chapter 1, James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so while we don't enjoy these kinds of circumstances and we don't seek them out, you don't have to because they'll find you, right? We know that God allows them into our lives. Why? Why does God allow these things into our lives? Because he loves you. It's not in spite of the fact that he loves you. It is actually because he loves you that he allows these situations into your life so that he can work through them and make you into and form you into the person he wants you to be. The second thing we see in this chapter is an explanation of God's justice, an explanation of God's justice. See, the Thessalonians were weary because of the abuse and the mistreatment that they were receiving at the hands of people in their city. And so Paul encourages these faint-hearted people by giving them an explanation of God's justice. He says in verse 5, this is the evidence, or this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. See, many of us, when we uh, experience hardships and difficulties, our immediate thought is that God is absent in those times, right? Our, immediate, our minds go to that place. We think, where is God right now? And, and sometimes we feel like our suffering calls God's fairness or God's justice into question. Like, is, you know, God, where are you right now in, in the midst of this? Why, why are you letting this happen? Are you just standing by? Why aren't you helping? And God... How is this fair that this is happening to me? And what Paul tells the Thessalonians here is that even in their suffering, first of all, he says, God is not absent. God is at work in the midst of your suffering. In fact, this suffering and your perseverance in that suffering is evidence of God's righteous judgment. Let me ask you a question. How is this evidence of God's righteous judgment, their suffering and their endurance in their suffering? Well, not only is God going to deal with the people who are mistreating them, we'll talk about that in a minute, but God was also using these hardships and difficulties for good in their lives. He, we see it, he was using it to grow their faith and to draw them closer in love to each other. In other words, it wasn't wrong, it wasn't unfair of God to allow these things to happen to them because God was using these hardships in their lives to accomplish something in them. And I wanna just stop right there and say this. Maybe there's someone here today and this is the word that you need to hear because of the situation that you're in. That the things you are facing, the hardships you're experiencing, God has allowed them into your life because he has a purpose. Because he wants to use them to accomplish something in you. 
And so Paul says here in verse five, he says that in the midst of these hardships they're facing, the way that they respond to them, the way that they are responding, right? They're responding in faith. They're responding by drawing closer to each other. He says that proves that you are worthy of the kingdom of heaven. That proves that you're worthy of the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't misunderstand this. He's not saying that you earn your way into heaven through suffering. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is this, that when your faith is put to the test, it reveals whether or not your faith is real and genuine. It's a litmus test, right? So in some countries around the world, if you've traveled, maybe you've, you've seen this, some countries around the world, they have a really big problem with counterfeit currency. And so what some countries have done is they've started making their money out of this material. It's almost like plasticky and, and smooth. If maybe you felt it, and the, the deal with it is that you cannot rip it. And so that's how you test. You literally test your money to see if it's real. So if you have a, a bill in that currency, let's say it's worth $100, what you can do is you take that bill when you receive it and you try to rip it. And if you can't rip it, and literally, like I've tried pretty hard, you cannot rip these things. If you can tear it, it's not real. And if you can't, then you know that it's genuine. It's worthy to be used as legal tender. And it's a weird feeling to try to rip your money, right? But, but it is a, a great test. It's an effective test to see if it's real. And the same thing is true of our faith. Not only can your faith not grow unless it is tested, but the testing of your faith actually proves whether it is genuine or not. And so if your faith falls apart as soon as hardship or difficulty comes along, then you really need to ask yourself some questions. Is my faith genuine? What am I really hoping in? What am I really trusting in? See, the Thessalonians' steadfastness and faith in the midst of their trial, it wasn't only a sign for them that their faith was genuine. It was also a sign to those who were persecuting them of God's righteous judgment, that God's judgment would be fair and just. It says in verse six, since indeed God considers it just or fair to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Uh, since indeed God considers it just, again, there's a word fair. He's talking about fairness when it comes to God's judgment. To repay with affliction to those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Do many people feel or, or even believe that the idea of God's judgment, God judging people for their sins, that this stands in contradiction to the idea of a loving God? And many people would say things like, I could never believe in a God who would do something like that. Or I don't believe that a loving God could ever send someone to hell. Or they might say, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that God would punish someone eternally because, of, uh, because they did some bad things in their life or because they didn't believe the right things. How is that fair? How is that loving? But remember who Paul is talking to here. He's talking to people who have been abused people who have been mistreated, people who have been persecuted, and he's writing to encourage them. And to encourage them, he reminds them that God is fair, that God will judge those who are doing these things to them. He says, these people who are hurting you, they might get away with it in this life, but one day they're gonna have to answer to God. They're not gonna get away with it. You know, God is going, God sees it, first of all, and he's going to deal with it and deal with it fairly and rightly and truly and justly. For anyone who's been abused and hurt and mistreated, that gives a sense of comfort. It gives a sense of comfort in knowing that God sees, 
that God knows and that God is just and he will do what is right and what is fair. And that person who, who did that thing to you, right, they will have to answer to God for what they did, even if they didn't have any repercussions here in this life. And whereas many people feel that it would be unfair for a loving God to judge, notice again, when, God, when Paul talks about God's judgment, he frames it in terms of fairness over and over. It is fair. It is fair. It is fair. See, we would be un, it would be unfair. It would be unjust for God to see people being abused, people suffering injustice, and to just not do anything about it just to let it go on and happen. It would be unfair and unjust for God to turn a blind eye and sweep it under the carpet and pretend nothing happened. See, the reason why people, the reasons why people, I think, a lot of times have a problem with the idea of hell is that they misunderstand what hell is. And what Paul says here is actually really helpful. Look at what he says in verse nine. He tells us what hell is. He calls it eternal destruction. So there's the eternal aspect of it. We don't wanna miss that away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. But notice that, away from the presence of the Lord. And who goes there? He tells us in verse eight, those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What's important to understand here is this. Hell is not punishment for particularly bad people. Hell is not a punishment for particularly bad people. Rather, for all of us, it is our default destination by, by nature, right, that is our default destination. Unless something happens, that's where all of us are going, eternal destruction away from the presence of God. And you see, that gets to this point. What makes hell so hellish, right, the badness of hell, is that you will be separated eternally from God. See, sometimes we get so caught up in our material, you know, ideas or imaginations about what hell is going to be like, you know, what will heaven be like, that we miss the point of both heaven and hell, right? In other words, you know, we're so worried, like, will my cat be there? Or like, will I get a mansion? Or will the streets actually be made of gold? Or is that like an allegory, right? And we miss the whole point. See, what makes heaven heavenly is that God will be there. What makes hell hellish is that God will not be there. You see, think about it like this. If Jesus is the bread of life, then the loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, then the loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, then loss of Jesus means wandering alone. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then loss of Jesus means eternal death. If Jesus is the lamb of God's sacrifice for our sins, then the loss of Jesus means paying that price ourselves. And again, who goes there? He says in verse eight, people who do not know God and people who have rejected the gospel. Let me ask you this. Has God made himself knowable? Yes, of course he has. The Bible says that even people who have never read the Bible or never heard about Jesus, right? God has revealed himself to them through the world that he has created. And he has built into our conscience the fact that uh, God exists and what he is like. And so is God knowable? Yes, but in Romans chapter one, Paul explains that this is what people tend to do. We suppress this innate knowledge that we have about God. We push it down. We try to push it away because we want to be our own lords and masters. We don't want him to rule over us. So we suppress what we know about God. We ignore him. We push him away. In other words, for those who have pushed God away, right, they've said no. They've pushed God away. To be separated from God is only to give them what they themselves have insisted upon. Is that fair? Absolutely. It's tragic, but it's fair. And Paul also mentions that those who receive God's judgment are those who reject the gospel. 
Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what Jesus did for you to atone for your sins and make you right with God. See, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short. But Jesus came, and on the cross, he took the judgment we deserved so that we could be declared righteous before God. On the cross, he, uh, he experienced the tangible darkness of being forsaken and separated from the Father. He experienced hell on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to experience it yourself. He suffered hell so that you could have heaven. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted. To reject that, to reject that offer, that salvation, is to say, no, I'm good on my own. I want to face the music myself. I don't want your salvation. Is it fair to give a person what they deserve? Of course, that's the very definition of fairness, is to give somebody what they deserve. What is not fair is to give somebody what they don't deserve. And that's the essence of mercy, isn't it, right? Mercy is to not give someone the punishment they deserve. Grace is to give someone what they could have never earned or deserved. That's not fair. But justice, absolutely fair. See, the worst thing that could happen to any of us would be for God to give us what we deserve would be for God to give us what we deserve. And so when we come to God, we don't say, God, you see my heart, give me what I deserve. No, just the opposite. The wise person is the person who says, God, you see my heart, and therefore I cast myself upon your mercy, and I ask you for your grace, and I thank you that you offer it to me freely. See, the good news is that when you do that, God embraces you, and beginning that day for all of eternity, rather than cold, dark, brutal separation from God, you get to experience the warm, bright, life-giving joy of being embraced by God. See, if you were to read the Bible from beginning to the end, right? Here's what you would happen. As you're re reading the Bible from the beginning, you would start to learn about who God is. You would see that God presents himself as a God of justice who always does what is right, the perfect judge, equitable, fair, and true. But then you'll notice another thing that happens. Well, it seems that even though God is a God of justice, sometimes he acts in mercy, right? Sometimes he's gracious and patient with people. He doesn't give them what they deserve. Now, the only problem with that is that it creates a, a, an issue because, see, of justice and mercy are by definition opposite of each other. See, if justice means giving someone what they deserve and mercy means not giving someone what they deserve, well, then to treat someone justly would be to not do mercy, and to show someone mercy would be to not give them justice. And so these two, there's this tension there. They're diametrically opposed to each other by definition. And the question becomes, as you read this, you're like, okay, well, who is this God really? Who will he turn out to be in the end? Is he a God of mercy who, who's patient and gracious with people? Or is he a God of justice who always does what is right and gives people exactly what they deserve? In fact, many Bible scholars have said that this is the question that the Old Testament deals with. It's the question of who will God turn out to be in the end? Will he turn out to be a God of justice or will he turn out to be a God of mercy? And the Old Testament ends without resolving that question, without answering that question. You see, it's only when we get to Jesus that that question is answered. Because in Jesus, God became one of us in order that he might take the judgment that we deserved so that we could receive the mercy. You see, God's justice and God's mercy in Jesus, both in full force without any compromise. In Jesus, God's justice is satisfied so we can receive the mercy by his grace. See, that's the good news of the gospel. And the way to receive that grace is to trust not in yourself, but to trust in Jesus and what he did for you. Rather than asking God to give you what you deserve, you ask 
him to give you what Jesus earned for you through his life, death, and resurrection. See, understanding the reality of God's justice helps us understand why the gospel is such good news. In order to appreciate your salvation and cling to your Savior, you need to understand the reality of God's justice. But there's one last thing before we move on. See, our salvation isn't only that God saves us from judgment and darkness. He says in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at by all who have believed. You see, you may be suffering now, he's saying, but the day is coming when suffering will end. The day is coming when death will be no more, when there will be relief. When Jesus comes back, it will be more marvelous than you could have ever imagined. And Jesus will be glorified in you. You know what that means? It means that that which makes Jesus so wonderful will become part of you. He will put that into you. That is who he is making you to be. And that brings us to our conclusion, which is this, a surprising prayer. In the final two verses, Paul prays for them, but notice what he prays. It's, it's quite surprising. He says this, to this end, and what end? He's talking about Jesus being glorified in them. To this end, we pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling. And then he says this in verse 12, so the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why that's surprising? Here are these people who are being persecuted. They're suffering. And yet Paul doesn't pray that God would stop their suffering and end the persecution. Isn't that surprising? That's what I would pray if I was praying for the Thessalonians. That's what I pray for myself, right? Like when I'm facing a hard time, God, make it stop, right? Save me from this thing. Put an end to it. And yet Paul doesn't pray that for them. What Paul prays for them instead is no matter what happens, whether the persecution continues or ends, no matter what happens, May you glorify God by the way that you live. May you glorify God in the midst of it, even in the midst of your struggles. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm challenged by that. I think sometimes we get so focused on our circumstances and our desire for comfort and security that we lose sight of the real question that we ought to be asking, which Paul brings our attention to back here, which is this. How can God be most glorified in my life? How can my life be used for his purposes? How can I best reflect his heart to other people so that through my life, people are drawn to him? So that through me, people might see his goodness and love and grace. You know, as I was, I was talking about this with somebody this week, and they reminded me of a time in my own life when, when they knew me, and they said, you know, when God was most glorified in your life was when you went through that thing. And it was a, really a time of hardship for me. And it makes me rethink things that maybe sometimes God is most glorified, not in our best circumstances, but when we go through hard things and we trust in him in the midst of it. Now, that isn't to say that God can't be glorified in your successes as well. Of course he can be. But it means this, that sometimes we ask the wrong question. We think, how can my circumstances get better? But God wants us to be asking the question, how can God be most glorified in my life in the midst of what I'm going through right now? You know, Jesus said this to weary people. He said, come to me, all you who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he said this, take, you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. So three things, right? Come to Jesus, put his yoke on you, and learn from him. What does it mean to come to Jesus? What does it mean for us to do that so we find rest for our souls? Of course, rest for our souls is what we need, especially for us who are faint-hearted and fatigued. It's not physical fatigue. It's that emotional, spiritual fatigue. It's that sense of being drained and worn out, even if you're not physically tired. It's what Jesus is talking about. You need rest in your soul. How do we get that? He says, here's how. By coming to Jesus, taking his yoke upon you, and learning from him. 
What it means to come to Jesus, it means to approach him by faith in who he is and what he's done. It means to cling to him, to trust in him, to rely on him rather than yourself. To come to Jesus. You know, the second thing he says is, take my yoke upon you. And a yoke is a wooden contraption that they would use to hook two oxen together and hook them to a plow so they could plow a field. And what that means, to put Jesus' yoke on you, that might not sound comfortable, but it's a really encouraging thing. You know what he's saying? Jesus is saying, join me in my mission. Link yourself up with me and let's do this together. Let's walk this path together. Let's carry out this mission of God together. So come to him in faith. Join him in his mission. Finally, learn from him. Become a disciple of him. A student that as the student, you might become like the teacher. For you who are faint-hearted, be encouraged. Not only is there coming a day of relief and justice and ultimate joy for us who believe, but even today you can come to Jesus and find rest for your souls. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for this knowledge that, Lord, those of us who struggle, those of us who weep now, Lord, the day is coming when in Jesus there will be an end to all this pain. There will be an end to this, Lord, and there will be a, a day of being embraced by you forever. And Lord, we look forward to that. And we pray that until that day comes, Lord, may we be those who will come to you by faith, who put your yoke on us and we join you in your mission of glorifying you and bringing your name and your goodness and your truth to this world. And Lord, we pray that that would also be true, that we would learn of you, that we would become disciples of you. Lord, enable us by your spirit to do these things. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, that it's not on us and what we need to do for you, but it is all about what you have done for us in Jesus. And we rejoice in that as we go this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.